there. I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to work as a political speechwriter, outreach coordinator, or even chief of staff, or even more about the value of strategic storytelling, then this is the episode for you because my next guest spent about a decade of his life in the political world and has turned that experience into a thriving business as a story strategist for executives, for salespeople and organizations, all of whom need and want to cut through the noise and connect with their customers and supporters. But before I introduce you to Matt Zahn, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's newsletter that showcases all of our upcoming guests on T4C, as well as features career advice, insights, and inspiration. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Sumatra-loving strategic storytellers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Matt Zahn, the founder and CEO of Matt Zahn LLC. It's a company that specializes in workshops, executive coaching, and professional development. Each workshop is customized for optimal learning. It gives you actionable tools for storytelling strategies and actually gives you the secrets of the best orders in the world today. Prior to founding his company, Matt spent about a dozen, 10 years working in politics among them, working as chief of staff and story strategist for Eric Rowe. He actually campaigned with Rowe in Pennsylvania and helped him win a seat as a Republican state representative. That was back in 2016. Rowe then actually became one of the youngest elected officials from Pennsylvania. And in that role, Matt not only served as a spokesperson for Roe, but he also developed messaging strategies. He created marketing campaigns. He wrote policy initiatives, managed staff, and implemented the office's strategic plan. Earlier in his career, prior to joining Roe's campaign, Matt worked for two and a half years for the Pennsylvania House of Representatives in the southeastern district of Pennsylvania. Actually, I should just say southeastern Pennsylvania. He worked as a regional coordinator and speechwriter. He worked with elected officials on both sides of the aisle to ensure they had the right message. And he helped them with their speechwriting, communication strategy, and media outreach. Matt has also worked as a district outreach coordinator and policy manager. He did so for Pennsylvania State Representative John Lawrence. He also worked for Representative Kurt Schroeder, who went on to serve nine terms in office. Earlier in his career, Matt worked in the private sector. And if you listened to our Espresso Shots episode, and by the way, if you haven't, 
check out show notes to see if that's already dropped. Matt talked a lot about, in fact, one of the most surprising things for young people about politics, the world of politics, is that it's about sales. Matt started his professional life as a market sales coordinator and account manager. He did that for over five years at Granger, which is a very large international supply company. If you want to learn more about how to break into politics, check out show notes to see if Matt's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Matt, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go? Sure am. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Definitely. So you can't tell this because you're listening to this over audio, but Matt and I can see one another and he held up his rather large mug there. What type of coffee do you drink in the Zahn household? I, I love Wawa coffee. Unfortunately, some of your listeners don't have access to Wawa, but if you are in our area, I feel like there's a Wawa in every corner. I think they produce fantastic coffee. Okay. I know I have certainly filled up my gas tank at Wawa. I don't know if I've actually sampled Wawa coffee. I will have to add that to my list. Do you just go for the French roast or do you like the flavored coffees? So they have a really good regular, but their hazelnut is fantastic as well. I had a hunch. I just had a hunch. So I can imagine that, that we may well have some listeners who are thinking right now, a storytelling strategist? Why do we need to learn storytelling? Isn't that something that parents do before bedtime for their little kids? Why do adults need to learn storytelling for professional reasons? (laughs) That's a great question. So Absolutely. So as we do this with our children, we grow up. It's part of our DNA. It's part of what we love. In the political world, as I was doing debate prep, as I was doing press conference prep, town hall prep, all these different elements of speech writing in the political world world, that all surrounds around storytelling, because storytelling is what's going to have that emotional pull that the audience is going to be connected to. So data is daunting. It is stories that actually stick and sell in your target audience's mind. What is a storytelling strategist? So what I do is I really focus on messaging strategy and making sure that stories, businesses, organizations, as well as individuals are sharing is actually connecting with their target audience. So I primarily do this through workshops, through keynotes, and through one-on-one coaching. So there's many different elements of story strategy. A very big part of that is building a story bank. So I teach my clients how to... Well, first off, what is a story bank? Then how do you actually pull it all together? And then how do you consistently use that story bank to get what you want? So what is a story bank, Matt? Sure. So a story bank is a doc, it's a document that you create. It could be physical or it could be through the computer. A lot of people that I work with use it through a Google Doc. Otter is a great application for those of you that are listening that haven't heard of Otter. It transcribes all your messages for you and then you can tag all your stories. It's fantastic. But pulling together 
stories that you can utilize in the future when you need them. So for instance, when you're watching a, let's say a presidential debate, I want you to imagine the primaries on both the Democrat and Republican side of the aisle when they have those debates and there's 20 different people up on stage and they're all going at it. And when you have that many people, there's, there's very quick sound bites that happen. And oftentimes the general public looks at that and they say, wow, is that person witty? Wow, did they just pull something out of thin air? But more than likely, that individual has spent countless hours looking at research, looking at different messages that are going to land with an audience. And they, they put that in a story bank. And they know how to use either a two-minute story or a 30-second message in order to actually get that to stick. So everyone should be doing this. I don't care if you are a CEO, if you're an executive, you're a high-level sales professional. It, it doesn't matter where you are in a company or even you know, obviously running a company, but you have to have a story bank. So when someone asks you a question, your story is ready to go. So a story bank is kind of like your your storytelling arsenal so that somebody lobs a question at you, you're pulling out the right, I'm going to be a little more dramatic here, but the right type of arrow. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm not doing a very good job, but basically you've got all these stories there and you say, well, I've got the long story about if I want to motivate. I have the short story if I want to wake somebody up and get them to start paying attention. Is that kind of a... Yeah, that's definitely good to have those as far as like funny and inspirational. That That's all well and good to have. I do think it needs to go a little bit deeper in, in different elements in a sense that... So when I was doing debate prep, debate prep is... It, it is extremely time consuming. So to give to give anyone listening an idea into the world of debate prep, when there's a debate on the calendar, obviously you you know when it's going to take place. And prior to that event, there are weeks and weeks and weeks of research, pulling different questions together, getting that candidate ready to shine when they go on that debate stage. So while I was doing this and while I was pulling together hundreds and hundreds of questions for each different debate on what could come up, what I realized is every single question could be attached to an emotion. That's the pattern of these different questions. And it's not just debates, it's town halls, it's press conferences. When someone asks you a question, often what happens is someone thinks to themselves, I hear words, what kind of words can I say to these words? However, the question should be, I hear the question, what is the emotional root attached to this question? And do I have a story in my story bank that connects with that emotion? So there are seven emotions that constantly come up in the political world, in the sales world. I don't care if it's a business, if it's a nonprofit, there are seven different emotions that consistently come up. Excited, angry, fearful sad, surprised, hopeful, and interested. So when someone asks a question, more than likely, the root of that, that question is attached to one or to one to seven of those different questions. And it is the person that's responding. It's their job 
to identify what emotion is the driving force behind that question and utilize a story to connect with that question. I wonder if that is why, Matt, the really amazing politicians have very high EQ. That's definitely a part of it. I think another part, that's a great observation. I would say absolutely. I think another part of that too is to get to anywhere in politics, especially in the United States, there are so many hoops that you need to jump through. There are so many people that you need to meet along the way. So think of anyone, whether it's the presidential level, whether it's a U.S. Senate level, they've had unbelievable amounts of interaction with people. And by doing that, it, it forces someone to get out of their shell, to shake hands, to kiss babies, right? It forces them to go to so many different events. So by the time they actually get in that position, they've already gone through so much from, you, you mentioned EQ, from that emotional intelligence perspective that hopefully by the time they get to a large debate stage, they're ready to truly connect with people. So are advisors like you, when you're out with the candidate meeting and greeting and whether it's a town hall, whether it's a grip and grin, whatever the case may be in the retail politics, are you writing down these stories? Are you capturing them as you hear them? I mean, not every single one, but do you debrief at the end of the day and say what really stood out to you so that you can put it in the candidate's story bank? That's a part of it. I think that's a really good part of it. I think documentation is huge. One of the things that I, I share with many people, and this is a little bit of a side note, but I think, I think it really answers your question, is comedians are fantastic at this, specifically stand-up comedians. One of my favorite comedians is Jerry Seinfeld. I think he's phenomenal from a stand-up comedian perspective, and he utilizes obser observational humor. So whenever he's living his life, whether it's something as mundane as the conveyor belt at the grocery store going down, which he actually has a bit on that, or a mail carrier putting mail in a mailbox. He also has a bit on that. When he sees things like that in life, his, his, his question is, where is the funny in this? How can I uncover the funny in this? And he does a fantastic job in the political world, in the sales world, in any world that you need to persuade individuals. I don't care if you're in business or if you're a director of a nonprofit and you need to boost fundraising. The question should be, as different experiences happen in our life, we need to uncover where is the story in this that I can use for the future to inspire someone to action. And, th and a lot of times that's missed. So we need to do a fantastic job of capturing that. One of the things I think amazes people, and it's not really amazing to me anymore because I look at it from a logical math perspective, is the sheer volume of stories an organization needs to be relevant. So just to give you an idea, 1,095 messages in a year is only three a day. So can we capture three stories and or messages a day to really fill that story bank. So when I say build a story bank, I mean build a robust, massive story bank. I often find it funny when I work with organizations and we talk about messaging strategy and they say, oh yeah, I remember we posted a story about that on our Facebook page two months ago, or we have a story on our website and that, yeah, we're all into story. And 
My response to that is Amazon spent $13 billion on ads last year. $13 billion. They're arguably one of the most successful companies in the United States, and they spent $13 billion on advertisements. Why? To stay relevant. So anyone listening, again, I don't care where you are in life, what you do as a profession or what you want to do as a profession, you need to have a large story bank and constantly be sharing these messages and stories to stay relevant. Wow. $13 billion on advertising. That is insane, isn't it? It's insane. So Matt, can you break down for us what are the key components to a great story? Absolutely. So I'll give you, well, actually let's, let's talk about this. So in my opinion, I think the greatest storytellers in the world today are Pixar screenwriters. Okay. I think they do a fantastic job of utilizing elements of story. Now, what's interesting about that is all of them utilize something called the hero's journey. And the hero's journey, there was a professor, Joseph Campbell. He developed this whole idea where he did an intense study on different stories, uh, religious stories, different stories that people have mentioned over the years, different stories that sell, different stories and books and movies. And he basically came up with a formula that he called the hero's journey. Now, when we're talking about Pixar, they can go through the 12 stages of the hero's journey in a two-hour major motion picture, right? They're dumping $200 million into a movie. They should be able to cover those elements. When we're sharing a 30-second message or when we're sharing a two-minute story, obviously, we can't go through all the elements of the hero's journey. However, there's one element that we absolutely need to include, and that's a huge part of the hero's journey, and that is ordinary world, new reality. Ordinary world, new reality. If you think about Pixar... And you think about Disney, Disney bought Pixar, Disney now incorporates a lot of the hero's journey, Disney bought Marvel, Disney bought Star Wars, they all are utilizing this strategy of the hero's journey. When you think about movies like that made today, typically you have a main character, they're going through their ordinary world, and then boom, they hit a wall and they need to get over that wall and they need a mentor to pull them over that wall and that becomes their new reality. That is so important. In the political world, the ordinary world is where you are and then buy into my policy initiative and this will be the new reality. In the sales world, it's here's where you are, invest in my service or my product, here will be the new reality. So a key element of storytelling is incorporating that within the story. Excellent. So having been on your LinkedIn page, and if you're not following Matt Zahn on LinkedIn, you need to follow him. He posts many times every day. My feed is full of Matt Zahn's updates. (laughs) He breaks down the three components in the following way. Grab their attention, speak under pressure, persuade with power. Yeah, a lot of that, a lot of that's regarding my training. So when I work with someone one on one or in a workshop setting, I'm, I'm really going through those elements. From a LinkedIn perspective, I like to to think of it as CAT, C A T, connection, appreciate, trust. So every time I post, 
I'm thinking when I post this, is my network going to connect with it? And I don't mean a connection request. I mean, are they going to really connect with a message? The A, are they really going to appreciate this? And T, are they going to trust me more by posting it? So the T element, sometimes I'll post things in regards to my family. I will have a business element intertwined, but it's a way to build trust. So for instance, my, my six-year-old son, I told him, you know, once I hit a certain goal of mine, I'm going to buy you a Nintendo Switch. <laughs> so I posted that on LinkedIn. It's a great business story, right? So from someone that is trying to aspire to do something, I had a goal. My son asked me every single day, when are you buying my, my Nintendo Switch? So it was a kick in the pants for me. It was a motivator. But why I posted that was to build trust with my audience. I'm not just some guy on LinkedIn anymore. Now I'm connecting with people because now they know I'm a father. I often will post different things my wife talks to me about in business. My wife is unbelievably good at business. I, I consider her a business genius. She is an, an HR IT whiz. And she does amazing things for her company that she works for. And often she gives me incredible advice in business. So I'll make sure to post that to talk about that. And I'm doing it to build trust with my audience. So C-A-T, connection, appreciate, and trust. Is it fair to say that someone's personal elevator pitch, when, for example, our young listeners are going out for an interview with a prospective employer for an internship or a job, also requires great storytelling? A personal or a business elevator pitch? Personal. Absolutely. There's, a, there's a, a storytelling element to that. So from a job interview perspective, it may be a little bit different than, than networking, for instance. So when we're talking LinkedIn or we're talking networking events like a Zoom networking event or even an in-person networking event, that's a little bit different. From, a, from an interview perspective, I would say there's absolutely stories intertwined. One, one of the, the, the unbelievably important things about having a story bank for an interview is often when you're meeting with a hiring manager, when that individual, when, when he or she is asking a question, often there's an emotion attached to that too. And the, the individual needs to do a good job doing research, understanding the company or the organization before they walk in and try to figure out why would this person be asking this? Are they asking that question from a place of fear? So someone's going into an interview and they're interviewing for a sales job. And some of the questions would lead them to believe that there's high turnover there. And that hiring manager absolutely needs that sales representative to meet their quota for the month. Can they position that with a story that, that explains their expertise, that gives that person an understanding of what they've done in the past to be successful? But it could be coming from an emotional element of fear or excitement or anger or sadness. Oftentimes people ask me, how does sadness come up in an interview? If someone says that they have an incredible team and COVID has been a struggle for them because they love being around their team members and they miss them and Zoom isn't the same, well, now that person can connect with that sadness by saying, I know exactly how you feel. I've worked in, in positions in the past where we had tight-knit teams and it was a family type element and we had each other's backs and we loved it. And it, it, was, it was really tough being apart from one another. So there's different elements that 
yes, you absolutely need to use story in an interview. And you really need to understand that there's, there's emotional elements coming up that you need to identify and then connect with. Would you say that you have always been a good or great storyteller? Or do you think that this is something that you have honed over the course of your career? I love that question. No, I was, a ter- I was terrible, terrible years ago. So I'll give you a story. <laughs> story. Of course. We'll capture this. So my link into politics, if you will, was I had a conversation that I didn't realize at the time was the last conversation that I would ever have with my grandfather. I had this amazing conversation. It was at his dining room table. And he was really frustrated with the direction that, that things were going politically, both sides. He was just so frustrated. He was a World War II veteran. He blew, Half his hand got blown off during a combat mission. He received his Purple Heart. He was one of the most incredible individuals I've ever met. He was one of the most giving people I've ever met. Like He was an individual in the community that wanted to help people as much as possible. And he had this conversation with me where he implored me to get involved in politics, telling me the importance of working with leaders that had courage and integrity, regardless of what side of the aisle they're in. He, he basically said, like, we need to bring this together. We need to work. You, you need to work on this. And then he passes away. And I felt a sense of duty, of obligation to start getting involved in the political world. And the problem with that was I could talk to people one-on-one, but I couldn't do any kind of public speaking or inspiration or story. I was terrible at it. So what I did was I got involved in tons of different campaigns behind the scenes, primarily in a research capacity. And then I started helping them on policy initiatives in a research capacity. And I got hired by a gentleman that really wanted me to focus on public policy. It was almost like a public policy manager, if you will. He had all these ideas. He said, here are my ideas, put them down in the form of a bill. So hopefully one day they could become law. And a few weeks into this new job that I had, I'll never forget, he said, all right, well, now I need you to help me sell it. And I remember thinking to myself, I I wasn't hired to be a sales representative for you. And he said, no, he said, having an idea is one thing. Getting buy-in from other people is what actually matters. I need you to help me sell this. He said, there's a there's a group of people that are going to be meeting in a couple of days from today, and I can't make that meeting. I have another obligation. So I need you to go and speak on my behalf. And I remember going to this meeting, him telling me I had to go a few days in advance was probably the worst thing for me. I couldn't sleep <laughs> leading up to this meeting. I remember him saying that the people at this meeting are completely and entirely opposed to this initiative. And what's more, they hate me. <laughs> so more than likely, death by association, they will hate you too. Choose your words very carefully. And I remember going, and I wish I could tell you that it went better than I had expected. I wish I could tell you that my, my fears were completely unjustified. It was an absolute disaster. I stuttered, stammered, had sweaty palms. I knew what to say, but at that time I couldn't say it because I didn't know how to articulate a point in that regard. And I remember after this meeting was over, running out to my car, slamming the door and literally yelling, that'll never happen again. I don't know what it's going to take, but I'm going to learn how to share a message. 
So because I love research and because I love diving in and all these different elements when it came to a data type perspective, I started researching and figuring out what do the greatest orators of our time do to inspire others. And I became a student. I spent hours a day studying, researching, reading, figuring out what makes someone like a Martin Luther King Jr. How does an individual like that inspire others to action? How, and there's all these different people, like you, you watch their speeches, you, you listen to their speeches. There's elements that they do to really drive home their points and then inspire others to the action that they want. And because I already was involved in the political world and I'd been on so many campaigns at that point from a research perspective, I already had a network of a lot of different politicians. So as I was learning this, I started writing these messages for those politicians. And then that led me to a lot of political messaging strategy and political speech writing. And, and it took off from there. So to answer your question, I was an absolute disaster when it came to storytelling and public speaking. So the fact that I do public speaking and storytelling and coaching as a profession is insane. If you would have told me a decade ago that this is where I'd be, I probably would have passed out just due to the anxiety that it would have caused. <laughs> well, speaking of what you were doing a decade ago, or even going back a little bit farther, when you were an undergrad, you went to Hartford County College, and you had a major of business, not politics, not public policy, not government. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree, Matt, when you graduated? No, I, I didn't. But business and politics are very tightly intertwined. So I, I think it, it absolutely helped me understanding elements of business because business is people. It's relational and politics is relational as well. I think that's a huge part of it. The ones that succeed in business and politics understand that human relational element. The reason why I love politics so much is because it's, it's strategy on steroids. It's, 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 it's a chess game every single day. I think what makes it good is people that are, are doing things to actually help others and their hearts in the right place to move those chess pieces. I think it becomes dangerous when there's a lot, there's some people that are malicious about it and, and they, they're in it for themselves. But it was, it was taking business and utilizing strategy in business. And I, I was an account manager for Granger, which is an industrial tool company many, many moons ago. And what ended up happening was in the evening, I was serving on campaigns. So I'd work my full-time job and then I would have dinner. And literally after dinner from very late, sometimes even the wee hours of the morning, I was doing a lot of different campaign work. And that's what really catapulted me into that political world. But no, I, I didn't even dawn on me that I would go into politics. My grandfather had a huge influence on me. That conversation that we had was a 20-minute conversation. But prior to that, months leading up to his death, we had multiple conversations about politics and the political arena and public policy. So it was planting the seeds subconsciously in me to go in that direction. But I, I never thought of, oh, I'm going to get involved in politics one day. That was, that was, never, that was never the goal. I love it. I love it. So did you have that conversation with your grandfather when you were in high school or? No, it was later in life. Yeah. And that's, that's what the beauty of it is. And for anyone listening, you can always reinvent yourself. You can always go a different direction. And 
Yeah, it was great. And I, I started working on a bunch of different campaigns and just absolutely got the political bug. And I wanted to do more and more and more. And what's interesting, though, is I have a strong desire to be involved in strategy. I love strategy. I love helping people. And I, I'm still doing that, whether it's in business or politics. Oftentimes, we talk about goals. And that's all well and good as a culture to talk about goals. However, I really, I push back in a little, in, in a sense and say, focus on the map that you have. Are you going in the right direction? Here's what I mean by that. So I, I live right, right outside Philadelphia. If I was to hop in my car and I was to drive to Los Angeles and I type in my GPS directions to drive to Los Angeles, I'm not going to actually take those directions every single step along the way. Why? Because there's going to be a bridge closure. I'm going to get to a road and it's going to be flooded. I'm going to have to reroute and go around. And there's going to be different things that happen from Philadelphia to Los Angeles where I'm not actually going to go all the steps along the way that that GPS is going to take me. But the map is still somewhat the same in that I started at point A and I'm going to end up in point B. So when I started in the business world, I love strategy. I loved helping people and serving people and getting them what they wanted, right? Filling a need that they had. Ultimately, in the political world, I was still doing that. It was just on a different level. And now I've kind of come full circle in the sense that I'm primarily focused on companies and, and organizations. I still do a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching with politicians, but it's not near what I was doing before. However, it's still part of my map of I'm obsessed with helping people get what they want from the psychology of inspiration perspective, from that storytelling and messaging perspective. So it's, it's all in the same world. It's just the goal has changed. See, I have a slightly different take on the way that careers unfold. And maybe it's just semantics. Maybe right. it's just our analogies. But I would say you're not really using a map at all. And especially to our young listeners, when they start, sometimes I think, Matt, they get intimidated by the idea that you need a map because what they're saying is, I'm confused. I don't know what I want to do with the rest of my life. I don't know if I want to go to LA. I don't know if I want to go to China. And so what I tell them is, don't worry about the map. What are your interests? What do you want to do for the next year or two? Because I think what happens with our careers, and you and I are both examples of this, is that they are iterative. It's only by doing that you know if you like it or if you don't. And even if you don't, either way, you're still learning. You're still pulling valuable skills out of that experience. And the other thing that happens is I call it magic. I really do. People come into your life. Experiences happen. Sometimes it's black magic, like the pandemic. Sometimes it's fairy dust. Like you meet someone who opens a door for you to an opportunity that you would never otherwise have even thought about. And you go in that direction. And so I think it's incredibly, I hope, empowering 
for our young listeners to know that no matter whether they studied business or in my case, political science or fill in the blank French American studies, whatever it is, you have valuable skills that have come out of that experience, both hard and soft, that are going to serve you well. That's a fantastic point. Yeah, I, I would. I do not want people to have any kind of anxiety with getting in, in, into different positions. And, and and the world changes so much. If COVID has taught us anything, it's that who knows where we'll be as a society in the next couple of years. Someone may study something or be in a role, and that role could completely change and they need to shift and they need to go in a different direction. I think my wife is a prime example of that in many ways. She, when we got married, we're, we're coming up on, on our 10 year wedding anniversary. And when we got married, she was in the healthcare industry. And there's a lot of changes that took place in healthcare and her job <laughs> went bye-bye, right? She got, she was laid off and she transitioned into IT. And it was the best thing that ever happened to her. It was unbelievable what, it, what has happened to her in the last few years. The, the job that she's in right now is an extremely, extremely in-demand position. She never thought in her wildest dreams that that's where she'd end up. We are so appreciative <laughs> that that detour on the road, she had to reroute and it, it was painful early on. But not only is is she where she wants to be, it's so much better than she ever thought. So anyone listening, there's going to be so much, so many changes that happened in the 20s, <laughs> this, this decade, that, yeah, really focus on your passion, on your purpose, and is what you're doing getting you more in line with that passion? So you see, I'm sorry to push back on that, because I actually think a lot of college students haven't yet identified their professional passion. So I think your message is very relevant for somebody who's maybe mid-career. I think you discover your passion by doing and your passion and your purpose can also evolve, but that may just be a difference of opinion. Well, no, I, I think you bring up a fantastic point. Yeah. So what I, what I mean by that with, with passion. So for someone that's in college, like for me, I love writing. I really appreciate it. I was on debate clubs and stuff like that. So for me, I really like that element. Again, I was terrible at public speaking, but I really like the writing. I like talking with people one-on-one. -on -one. So where is a good fit for me? I knew business. I would have a lot of strategy. I would have negotiations. So that comes back to the, the debate aspect. And I would also have to work with people connecting with them, again, one-on-one -on -one at that point. However, I knew that that was my passion. I also did a lot of sports, so I was very competitive. So what position could I be in that was competitive? So my challenge to anyone listening that, that is a college student is where are you with where you are right now that you're passionate about and what jobs out there could you start getting involved with, whether it's an internship or an actual job where you're going to really be excited about doing that? There's a gentleman who used to be an intern for me that, I mean, he was one of the most ambitious people I've ever met. And he came to me and he had said, hey, I love, I love writing. I'm really interested in law. He, he would always watch shows in regards to law and had a very strategic mind. 
And that was his passion. So he ended up being an intern and I ended up helping him get a job in, in DC. It was a, it was a great job for him. And now he's currently pursuing a law degree, but he did that because his, his passion really lined up with something in a, a career and in a job type setting. So I, I completely agree with you. I mean, there's different elements. We could say you know what we want when it comes to the words, but I think overall our themes are, are, are the same. Terrific. So Matt, through the course of working for various politicians and you were working on messaging and strategy and, and public speaking and speech writing and all of that, when did you get the idea to leverage the expertise that you had developed doing political messaging to start your own coaching company focused on, of course, part of storytelling is messaging, but strategic storytelling for corporations and, and nonprofits. So a few years in, writing different speeches for different politicians, and I, I was... I was starting to build a name for myself in the political world, and I was invited to a business event. And basically, the invite was, we're interested on you being a part of a panel. We want you to talk about political messaging strategy, different things happening from a business policy perspective. So I was invited to come to this, this event. And, and by that point, I had done speaking engagements, a lot of speaking engagements prior to this. I had overcome that intensive fear of public speaking. but. I had this, this mindset where I put everyone at this event on a pedestal because there were a lot of CEOs in the room that ran companies of tens of thousands of people. And in my mind, I mean, I didn't think much of what I did day in and day out regarding political messaging strategy because I lived and breathed it. Right? It, was, it, was, it was what I did. So I didn't think there was anything fascinating about it. But I'm on this panel and they were asking me different questions and I was talking about what we utilize from a persuasive element in politics. And it was revelation knowledge to them. I, I remember after the event, they came up to me and said, can you teach this to our sales teams? Can you do this? Can you do that? Oh my gosh, can you? And in my mind, I'm thinking, I, I just, I was blown away because I, I, I put these men and women on pedestals that they're running gigantic companies. Of course, they've heard about different debate prep elements. Of course, they know how to, how to write an engaging, incredible master. Of course, they, and the answer is they did it. And they, they had asked me, can you do this? Can you do that? So really my entry and re-entry into the business world from, to answer your question, what I was doing I started doing workshops for businesses where I'd, I would do a two to three hour workshop on how individuals can persuade with power through the art of strategic storytelling. Later, I created a workshop for nonprofits. So now I have two. I have one for, for businesses, one for nonprofits. The nonprofit one is how directors and board members can utilize stories to increase fundraising. I also do coaching as well. So... Yeah, I, that's that's where the aha moment came up. Where and 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 anyone listening right now, I would say to them that you have a superpower that other people don't have. There are different experiences you've had along the way that you may think, oh, everyone knows this. This isn't great, but yet it could be fantastic. A friend of mine who I consider a marketing genius. I mean, he is unbelievable when it comes to marketing. He can, he's, he's a fantastic. 
absolutely fantastic. He never thought that that would be desirable to a company within his marketing niche. He's really, really good at email marketing. And a lot of people have said over the years, oh, email marketing's dead. It's absolutely not true. There's a lot of people that do well with email marketing. That's his superpower. And now he is completely crushing it when it comes to that. So anyone listening, you have a superpower. You need to figure out how is this desirable to a company and position yourself to get into that company, whether it's from an internship or a job type perspective. Excellent. Thank you so much, Matt. So two final T for C questions. And these are questions I try to ask all of my guests. The first of which is, if you could share a time in your professional life when you struggled, Matt, maybe you even failed or got fired, as I did on two occasions. Or your business failed. Now, I know, because I've followed you for the last six months or so on LinkedIn, that you've had a personal experience with that because you've written about it. Could you share what happened and most importantly, how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process? Sure. So I'll share two quick story. So the one I think you're referring to is I I had a startup years ago and it was for multiple years and things were going great. And at one point we had 15 employees and it was cranking. And in the region that we were in, we really positioned ourselves for growth. And we were talking to VCs in Silicon Valley. So there were venture capitalists very interested in our startup from an investing perspective. And we grew too fast, too quick, and didn't have the resources to keep up. So it's just not a good recipe for, for growth. That time in my life, I learned a ton. And I was also able to work with a ton of companies as well. So it really got the reps in from a business messaging perspective as well. Again, that all ties into my passions and where I want to be. So I I got so many reps in. I learned so much about business from, from that experience. So that, that was definitely a failure that I utilized as a success. And then another one that I think is really important for me is being able to connect with people that I desperately want to help, but there, there's a disconnect. So there was a gentleman that I ended up coaching years ago who was in his late 70s, and he had multiple private conversations with Martin Luther King Jr. Okay, so he had marched with MLK. And there was there was a lot of separation between generational separation, right? He's old enough to be my grandfather, right? So why in the world would he listen to me? We're, we're from different races, different genders, different backgrounds, different everything. Why would he listen to me? And one of the things that I, that I worked on with him was I did a ton of research into people that he respected and he found valuable. So what I did was as I was coaching him, I expressed to him, okay, these individuals, here's what they did to inspire others to action and, and basically got buy-in from him that that's what he needed to do. And we had we ended up having a fantastic relationship. I worked with him for, for two years. It was one of the highlights of my life. He was one of the most giving, 
generous, incredible people I've ever met. And his, his background was just phenomenal. He, he talked to me about the conversations he had with Martin Luther King Jr. and what that, what that impact had on him. And he has just, he has completely changed the community that he lives. In. He's a phenomenal person. So that was definitely a setback in the sense of how in the world am I going to get this person to want to work with me to end up him and I, we're, we're good friends to this day. Terrific. Well, thanks for sharing that. Last question. If you could go back to college and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself, Matt? I would put more of a focus on psychology. I think that whether anyone listening is going into sales or marketing or politics or education or, I mean, pick, pick an industry, I think really understanding psychology is, is extremely important. I would have taken a lot more psych classes. I do a lot of reading in regards to psychology, but I wish that I would have put more of an emphasis on the, the formal education aspects into psychology. I also think that different elements of the psychology world will not be taken away due to artificial intelligence. So I don't think AI is going to have as much of an effect on the psychology world. So what I mean by that is there will still be psychologists, counselors, there's still there, there, there's a lot of different jobs in the psychology world that will still be here, I believe, in the next decade. So I think that's important to realize that AI can't replace empathy. It can't replace love. It can't replace those personal experiences. That's a big driving force behind psychology. So if I were to tell my, to give myself advice, it would be to take more psychology classes. Well, fortunately, you've two kids and you're, I'm sure, going to be giving them that advice. Although who knows where things will be when they get ready for college because they're still. They're six and two. Six and two. So they've been a few years ahead of them. You're right. (laughs) You can find Matt at mattzon.com. You can also find him on LinkedIn. Make sure to follow him. He's always putting out great advice. Matt, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. I have learned a ton. Thank you. I appreciate all your time. Thank you for all you're doing too. Your podcast is amazing. Absolutely amazing. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.